0: Hello listeners, this is your spoiler warning. We will be spoiling Suncatcher, Seven Days
1: in the Sky by Alia Ghee. Knowing that I'm not a human who made the world, but part of the world humans made, I am a construct, a proof of concept commissioned by wealthy, frightened patrons who wanted their future children to not have to fear illness or physical damage.
0: Welcome to the Book Club Podcast. Today, we are discussing Suncatcher, Seven Days in the Sky by Alia Gee. I'm Carly, and I enjoyed the, the setup for the story. It got a little bit complicated and confusing, but I think the story was, was pretty good overall, um, and interesting concepts were introduced.
1: I'm Caroline. I felt pretty similarly. I enjoyed the upbeat adventure of this book even if I felt like the plot was maybe a little overworked and the writing uneven in some places, but I definitely enjoyed thinking about a world where there's a fleet of solar powered ships up in the sky, uh, you know, living their best collective life because they've escaped (laughs) from earth down below. The concepts were great.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So the story follows Dr. Radikin Jones, a data science professor, who spontaneously decides to take a sabbatical and join her older sister, who created a fleet of airships powered by solar panels. As a data scientist, Radikin uses the internet, called the ether, by wearing virtual reality goggles and moving through the world of data as if it were a virtual world. She organizes the data using symbols. For example, she prefers a library as an organization method for her own data, and she uses dogs to represent search algorithms.
1: The ether was developed during the plague 16 years before the book starts, when most of the world was quarantined. Radicand and her sister, Pari, have a tense relationship because their younger brother was killed during that same pandemic, and Pari's husband also died, um, and their father, Abraham, was lost in the ether 18 months ago. At the beginning of the story, the fleet is attacked by pirates, But the fleet is able to capture two of the ships while the third ship retreats. They quickly discover that the pirates were hired by a corporation called East Santos.
0: Pari, Radikand, and a few others from the fleet acting as bodyguards visit their friends in Miami uh, at a Quaker restaurant. Then they're attacked by a blood cult. The blood cultists are insanely violent with the goal of murdering as many people as they can. The Quakers have drugs to detox the blood cultists. The attack is also thwarted by an old college friend of Radicans named Charlie. Charlie was a bioengineered person with dog DNA, so she has some dog-like qualities. She is a journalist and has been following a revival preacher named Ezekiel because she suspects that he is related to the prevalence of blood cults. Soon after that, Charlie is kidnapped by bounty hunters working for E. Santos. They claim she is the property of the corporation because of her status as a genetically engineered part human. Radikan and other fleet members are able to rescue her by providing proof that she was married and therefore recognized by the U.S. government as a sovereign human. Charlie joins the fleet for safety while the legal situation is figured out, and then she learns that one of her ovaries has been removed.
1: While all this is going on, Radican is also developing a romantic relationship with a member of the fleet named Toby. Toby was adopted by other fleet members as a child when he was found wandering the streets in Mexico. He tells Radican that he was also genetically engineered in a lab and escaped as a child by murdering lab tech. Toby is capable of regenerating his body, as in, he regrew his whole hand at one point. The FBI arrests him for the murders of the lab techs that occurred 20 years ago when he was a child. Radikan pulls together a quick marriage ceremony that's so that he can't be extradited to Mexico. As this is going on, Charlie and Radikan meet several times with three FBI agents who helped them make connections between East Santos, the Reverend Ezekiel, the blood cults, and Charlie's kidnapping. The Quakers are able to detox the blood cultists and discover they were at a revival meeting hosted by Ezekiel. They also discover detonation devices surgically implanted in the blood cultists. Just as an aside, this is kind of what we meant about the plot being a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we're only a couple days in to the seven days, so, so go on, Carly.
0: Sure, (laughs) so Uh, Radikin and Charlie figure out that East Santos has been losing profits partially because the fleet is able to provide energy to the cities where they dock. East Santos wants to revive their old genetically engineered super soldier program that Toby was the product of. The legal path for testing the therapies was too long and expensive, so they were drugging people who attended the religious revivals. People who reacted poorly to the drugs were made into blood cultists, so they would destroy themselves and the evidence. Radikin figures out how to find her father, who had been lost in the ether, she discovers his mind merged with a self-aware AI that calls itself Person. With the help of one of the FBI agents, who is also a cybernetic specialist and part machine, they transfer Person to the salvaged pirate ship,
1: freeing Abraham's mind and letting him return to his body. Person was created in the East Santos database. With its help, they find the research data on Toby, discovering that he has enough human data to be considered a sovereign human, not the property of the lab that made him. He is released. While Toby and Radikand are on person ship, the East Santos employee who has been driving all these actions makes one last play to reclaim the pirate ship and Toby. Person and Ratikind are able to defeat her in the ether, and they discover that she was an indentured employee of the corporation. Once she's caught, the corporation cuts ties with her leaving her without legal representation or support. She's then arrested. Radekin ultimately decides to stay in the fleet with Toby and her sister. And the book closes on that note. <laughs> can we can we just talk real quick before we get to the opening question about the plot a little bit? Because yes. it has a lot going on. And, I mean, there's a blood cult down in Miami. There's a genetic engineering in Mexico. There's... Uh, (laughs) this artificial intelligence that has obtained personhood, there's an FBI agent that also turns out to be artificial intelligence and not a real person. Uh, It's just, there's a lot going on. So that's kind of what I want to, I want to emphasize that this book is quick moving, and that may have been a little bit of a weakness to it. We're going to talk about the world building because there was definitely a lot of thought and a very specific vision about this world, but it's kind of hard to pick up what's happening because so much is going on so quickly, right? Right. Yeah. So I know I will be
0: making some leaps in judgment of just trying to make these connections because a lot of the times the connections don't feel very explicit in the book because there's yeah. there's so much action that, I, I mean, in our, in our summary, you talk about, Isantos santos driving all these things i think a lot of that is this, is our assumption because our interpretation book which it feels like we're making yeah. more interpretation than we do with other books because it is a quick-paced story and there's not a lot of exposition to really yeah. hammer home
1: everything i think carly you, you pointed out that this author and this is a debut debut book I, as i understand Was apparently very committed to that common bit of writing advice, which is that you don't do any exposition. It all has to come out naturally or sometimes a little unnaturally in dialogue,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) which for the project that you and I have, which is about what the world is, (laughs) it is about the exposition. (laughs) You know, that rule, which is a common bit of, you know, advice or rule or whatever you want to call it, isn't necessarily a good fit with what we're trying to do here, which is understand the world we're talking about. I'll also
0: say it could be adapted into a screenplay. And so I wonder how much of that is the intention of the
1: author as well. I think that's an interesting point. I think there are a lot of books out there that are written people by people who love stories, but maybe not necessarily novels, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like they don't necessarily sure. love the medium of writing. Anyway, sorry, on to the opening question.
0: <laughs> sure. So th- my opening question is what is personhood? And I'll expand on that. So we were given the example, many examples of different kinds of entities, like Toby and Charlie are genetically engineered. um, And, and person is an artificial intelligence. And I found it interesting that there were all of these sort of legal structures around personhood. So they have to navigate these legal disputes of like, who owns whom, based on legal precedent, which I actually kind of, I like that kind of thing. And I'm guessing you do too, Caroline, just to just oh, yes. hint.
1: <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so that was interesting. That, so the idea that like Charlie, because she had been married and they provide documentation that she'd been married means that she was recognized as a human and could not be treated as property. So that, that was interesting. And then there's also the idea of like employees can be indentured. And so they lose some rights as indentured employees. But then the corporation can cut ties with them as, as Winters our our final villain is she's cut off uh, after she had been doing everything she could to uh to reclaim profits for the company as she was instructed, you know? So there's like the rights of the corporation too, uh, that it's interesting in the beginning, Pari goes to law enforcement about being attacked by pirates. And she says, we are a union. We're not a corporation. And so, a a corporation cannot declare war on us. So apparently there's some legal structure that corporations can declare war on other corporations, but because the fleet is a union, there's some legal language there of like, if they attacked us and they're declaring war on us, then they're recognizing us as a corporation and therefore the law has to recognize us as a corporation. So all of this tied in with like, who has rights and the rights are so strictly codified and it gets very complicated very quickly. And so I wanted to talk about that because we're talking about, societies and ideal societies. So in this mm-hmm. society, I wouldn't argue that it's ideal, but it is interesting that in this society, personhood
1: is so determined by law and legal structure. Yeah. So I love this element of the book. As a lawyer, you rarely see such a good interweaving of, oh, here's what the law says. Here's that, how that would affect people's actions, the plot. Here's how it would change the plot in certain ways. Uh, while also, I think, presenting the law somewhat accurately in that it provides a lot of definitions. Some of them are arbitrary, but the fact that they exist, just the fact that they exist provides structure. Like in the fact of Charlie's marriage, there were a couple requirements. It had to be a marriage of more than five years and or have resulted in children, you know, and or this, that and the other to make sure it was, you know, quote unquote, a real marriage and therefore she'd be entitled to these rights. So I like that. I also think that it, this is accurate. The book is set in 2075, by the way. I don't think we said that. But it is set in America. And specifically, the fleet of airships keeps itself in the quote-unquote sunshine corridor, which seems to be along the, through Florida and maybe up through the south a little bit. It's not precisely defined, but it seems to basically be American airspace. And I think that's relevant because Americans do often have a very legalistic conception of both personhood and of duties owed to one another. And of course, those definitions, legal definitions flow from more philosophically held principles. But I like that she nailed down that, yeah, this would manifest in a welter of very specific laws, some of them archaic, some updated, (laughs) some applicable, some not. I mean, that's a good reflection of the legal system that we have.
0: Right. So then when Toby is about to be arrested, like literally FBI agents are pointing guns at him and Radikand. they're sitting at the Quaker restaurant when their FBI comes to try to arrest him. And in like in that moment, Radekand is like. All right, we're getting married now. <laughs> you know, like you're a witness. You point. You're a witness. You're a witness. She remembers all the words. I mean, it seemed pretty convenient that that could be recognized as legal marriage. Like she didn't have to go to a, a courthouse and get a license to get married. But still, she was able to to use that to their benefit. and Not have Toby extradited to Mexico, where it's implied that they were expecting him to be quickly. I don't know, executed or or whatever. Disappeared if he was taken into Mexico jurisdiction. So not only the American perspective of the legal structure, but also very clear definitions that like, if someone goes to Canada, or someone goes to Mexico, the rules that apply will be very different.
1: Yeah, I think, as for the question you asked, what is personhood, I think the closest we get is towards the end of the book, when they're talking about what genetically qualifies someone as a person. We're given this number, it's 99%, I believe, and there's a brief description of how you know, as we all know, humans share 90% of their genes with a banana, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then they share another 9% with all apes. And it's just this 1%, roughly paraphrasing here, that is pure human. And so that's what the definition was based on. And there's reference to, yeah, they took a DNA strand from someone at some point in time. And they essentially codified that. And they said, if it, you know, here is The marker, if it is, you know, 99% like this or more, then it's human. And if not, not. But of course, that's just the codification. I don't, does that really answer what is personhood?
0: Right. Well, I mean, the story is told through Radikin's perspective. So, I mean, she has her human emotional responses, right? There's a point where person the ai yeah person the ai in the ether so they're in this virtual world where person has a physical form person has essentially stolen data from e santos and the fbi finds them and shows up and person's like wait i'm only three and a half years old and Radikin's reaction is you can't arrest it it's a child <laughs> it's like this <laughs> this a very like emotional reaction of like oh it's just a three and a half year old child well that i mean Logically, not really. it's it's AI. Right. Uh, how can you apply human age to that?
1: Right. And also, why was it a person? right? I, I yeah. mean it's implied that this AI became, I mean sentient, obviously, but also had a sense of self, of continuity of self, of creativeness, you know, it wasn't just an algorithm, something like that. And so that suggests those qualities are what makes personhood although it's not particularly laid
0: out, right? Well, yeah, and it's interesting how the ether allows for this whole different experience of identifying, right? Like, in the ether, Radekand has her algorithms, which look like dogs. And at one point, she sends her dogs to go get her mom, and her mom's like, you know, I don't like dogs. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> they're algorithms. And it makes sense to me that in this virtual world, we have our instinctive reactions to things that look and act like dogs, even though they don't smell, even though they're not shedding, the mom still has this visceral reaction of, ugh, dogs. Why would you send your dogs for me? <laughs> you know. But that also gives them this extra layer of senses to identify like, this is a ghost. This is a person walking in the ether. That's how radikin identifies that the FBI agent isn't quite human because the FBI agent has such a physical presence in the ether that only a machine which has more synergy with the ether could have a more physical presence in the ether. So I think, I mean, that's kind of interesting that it's this virtual world and the way that the brain is interpreting these patterns I really enjoyed those parts of the book. I thought that that was really fascinating to think about how she like manipulates data.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting problem from a writing perspective, which is that as you have books that have a greater and greater element of technology, any book set now and in the future, there is a lot that happens in virtual space, but that doesn't look like anything, right? I mean, to describe that world would be really boring. Right. Nobody wants a lengthy description of like putting together this algorithm and going through the data and, you know, all that. And so it kind of needs to be dressed up in this language of, oh, the technology also allows it to be visualized. And here is how this character visualizes it. And her visualizations had a lot of had a very Victorian quality to them. Right. There was a lot of gas lamps and foggy streets and, you know, gentlemen's libraries and that sort of thing, which was pleasant to read. But it's interesting because it's not describing anything real, which is you know true of a book in general, but it's especially not describing anything real, right? Yeah. But I did enjoy reading those. It did they did have a good sort of atmosphere.
0: Well, I, it makes sense to me that humans need that kind of symbolism to efficiently work with all of the information, right? Like we have evolved to with our five senses to take in information and process it. And so when you that information is data in a database, if you could create an interface that takes the strengths of our thousands of years of evolution, I mean, that, that seems like that would be extremely efficient. And, and Radikin has, there's some comment about her, she has a lot of skill with that because she can use symbols effectively in the database. And she was a professor teaching students how to use symbols and how to use the ether effectively so that seems really interesting but so now i'm wondering the ether as a solar punk world in itself hmm maybe that's too far it's giving it too much
1: well i don't think it is too far actually it's very different from what we've been talking about but it is a world where individuals can create their own rule their own world you know uninhibited by existing power structures you know, with great creativity. I mean, you know, like the early internet, right? Hmm. I, I do think one thing that gives me pause is that the visualizations are not shared, right? So she visualizes this world and gives it a very Victorian cast, but she mentions that others don't. So she doesn't know what other people see, quote unquote, when they look at person or when they look at this area where her father, you know, is in the ether, and it's somehow a real place in software language. She has added the visualization that works for her. So she doesn't know what other people see. And that seems like a real problem if we're talking about any sort of shared world, right?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, there's still, there's a reality in it that all of the people who encounter person in the ether, even the FBI agents, don't make too much of an effort to arrest person. They're very quickly persuaded that person can be considered an employee and therefore has rights in some way. That means that person does not get arrested for
1: essentially stealing data off the East Santos database. So are they also similarly quickly convinced that person is a person? It's. It seems like it. It seems like it. But the way, but what you pointed out now, it seems like they also kind of sidestep that question by saying, well, whatever it is, it's an employee. So, you know, it has these rules and maybe that sidesteps the question of, is this a person a little bit?
0: Mm-hmm. Like they don't have a long discussion of like, is person a self-aware AI, right? right? Like I was expecting a discussion about that, like how to determine whether a person is actually self-aware Name. But but that just wasn't there. They just immediately were like, oh, yeah, it's self-aware.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Well, they kind of did it in what I would consider the reverse direction. So I think of it as a person is a person and therefore they have these rights and can have these roles such as, you know, employee or spouse. But here there seems to be a reasoning in the opposite direction. This person has a role with, you know, its duties such as employee, spouse, and therefore they're a person. Hmm. Which there is something appealing about that in a way, because it's much easier to figure out if someone fits in those smaller boxes like employee and spouse than personhood generally. Yeah. right. No,
0: that's a that's a good point. Yeah, it's easier to find that. It does make me uncomfortable because I feel like there could always be a loophole that someone could exploit. And in this book, our antagonists fail to exploit the loopholes. Our protagonists find them, find the loopholes and exploit them for their benefit but it it
1: makes me a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) It does me too, because I think there are people who qualify as people who might not fit in any of these boxes. And we see several people who nearly fall through the cracks, except that someone volunteers to marry them or employ them or whatever. But even more broadly, I think it's important to say that, that the definition of what a person is, is extremely important and also probably can't be defined. And there's a tension there, but that means you keep you have to stay open-minded about it because you recognize the importance of it versus trying to fit a bunch of little definitions in uh, you know, sort of trying to paper over that big question with a bunch of small boxes to check.
0: Right. Right. I mean, speaking of people falling through the cracks, I thought it was interesting. there was a part where Vatican and Pari and their bodyguards are, you know, walk through Miami, And Radican gets kind of caught up because there's always people hanging around the docks and she sees this woman with a baby begging and she, it kind of like tugs on her heartstrings a bit. And she has a reaction to her sister seeming kind of cold and callous about it. And Pari is like, I donate to the poor. Like I help the poor. She gets, you know, she does not like being criticized for this attitude and Eventually, Radikin like, agrees to pay to have this woman who turns out her name is Maria, and that's her grandbaby, and they bring her to the Quakers, and Radikin's like, I'll pay for her to, to be taken care of by the Quakers, and the Quakers take her in. So we've been talking about in these books, when we're looking at the health of a society, how are the poor and the disabled and the otherwise disenfranchised taken care of in the society? And this seemed closer to reality and that there are plenty of people who fall through the cracks. There are systems to try and and help people. But if Pari seems to state the idea that people need to find the way to be helped in a way, like they need to find Mm -hmm. the organizations or they need to join the organizations that will provide help. Like there's a certain responsibility of the people who need
1: help to go find it. If that, does that make sense? Did you get that impression? I didn't get that impression so much from what Pari was saying. I mean, maybe I just missed it, but I do agree there was a certain defensiveness and it was puzzling because, you know, why was that in the book, right? (laughs) It's otherwise (laughs) this very optimistic adventure story. And I think it was in there because this book is literally about people escaping into the sky and that's the people who are physically capable of it, intellectually capable, you know, whatever, that's going to be a smaller segment of society and they're up there in the sky in this fleet that is cooperatively and collectively run you know and it's beautiful and hopeful and optimistic but they literally left people d- behind on earth and so unlike some of the other stories we've read there's not a wholesale revolution of all society plenty of people are left on the ground and i think the author was kind of sensitive to that that it, and that's why this little section is in here i'm not saying she resolves it <laughs> exactly
0: No. And then Hari does say at one point, like she her part of her goal in creating this fleet is to offer people an alternative to show them that there is another way of living that they don't have to. I think this is in the context of the fleet generates a lot of energy. And when they come to port, they plug into the local energy grid and contribute energy to the grid. And so that's how they make money. And that creates competition with the with the grid. And there's kind of I think they talk about how the, the energy, e the energy company, is a huge corporation that has acquired many other corporations. And so Pari is offering an alternative to having to pay this sort of monopolistic energy Mm -hmm. corporation so she does have a higher vision of helping society as a whole and she wants to provide an example of what's possible and that makes her the target of isantos to begin with so so that's interesting but i like the idea like that concept of leaving people behind on earth because that also seems to tie into she carries a lot of guilt around leaving her family and Mm -hmm. radicand radicand's presence on the ship Brings that up. I think at one point Pari says, you know, the people I'm flying with, they they first saw me as their professor because she was a professor and it was her and a group of her students who built the first airship in the fleet. She said they either see me as a professor or they see me as the admiral of the fleet. And so her sister coming in kind of brings in this whole other role of like that's not as authoritative (laughs) so it's kind of a conflict between them but I think that ties into this guilt of leaving people behind like she seems to have this desire we find out later that Pari has created a whole organization that helps orphans and children you know like yeah. and adopts them out so like she has she, she has a lot of compassion a big heart and she wants to help people and she does that effectively but there are still always people left behind that you yeah. just don't have you can't help everyone essentially
1: i think this book goes to something we've talked about with all the books which is how do you break with the past and do or have something really new And there's references in this book to a previous plague and, you know, various disasters, human caused and otherwise, but it's not one definitive break with the past. And we see that with the characters too. Like they're trying to create something new, but for Pari, that meant leaving her family behind on earth. Like she hasn't seen them in years and years, you know, and I think that's a little more realistic, right? Most people and most societies don't get a clean break and a fresh start right? It sort of straggles along and you try to create something new, but you also have duties and obligations to the people you love now who are here. And that's just a tension, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have one more thing to say about Pari and Radikin's relationship that it kind of got on my nerves because Pari has this flirtation going with the Miami officer. I forget what the title is. Basically a police officer. Chief, Chief of, of police. Yeah. Chief yeah. of, yeah. And she's using her leverage as a union representative to get justice against the pirates. She's finding a sponsor. She's helping keep her sister safe and and Charlie safe. I identify as as the older sister, as Pari, as you could tell. (laughs) She's like juggling all these things, being an amazing leader. And her sister is just like, why can't she just like go on a date with this officer? And it kind of annoyed (laughs) me. It seemed like there's a there's a there's a line where Radican is thinking she wishes her sister could have straightforward happiness. And that really rankled me that, yeah, just because Pari doesn't have a husband and children, why Radican is making this judgment that she can't be happy or that there isn't a kind of happiness. And, and Pari is like very annoyed with her. She's just like, look, I'm trying to decide I've been offered this opportunity to build things on land, but then I have to give up the fleet. Like she's got plenty going on yeah. and she has all this opportunity And she's trying to decide between two really excellent options of opportunity. But just because neither of those include a husband and children, like Radikins, like, she's not really happy. So I had to get that out. (laughs) I had to vent about that a bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty annoying. Also, Perry has an amazing family. She has built this family in the sky, right? There's this fleet of ships. Each ship is kind of like a household, but they all work together. It's I mean, it's the best neighborhood and community one could want, it sounds like. She is not lonely. She is not missing, you know, she's not lacking for anything. But that is a different form of happiness and community. And I I guess Radicand needs to evolve to be able to see that. Yeah. Well, thank you for validating my feelings about that. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. 100%.
0: Awesome.
1: (laughs) Maybe we should talk a little bit about the indentured servitude part, because that goes with the personhood part. And as I recall, there were two elements, or like two levels to it, forget what they were called. But one was closer to servitude. And one was a little bit better, because eventually you could buy your freedom, I think, or work towards it, like your servitude was for a set amount of time. One of them included being branded. And I guess I guess that was the lifetime commitment. And there's this sort of toss off statement of yeah, that's actually a good choice for a lot of people because it gives them lifelong security, right? Hmm. That is a reasonable choice yeah. in some circumstances, which horrifying that society has gotten to that point where that is a reasonable choice. But I liked that the book maintained the dignity of the people who made that choice.
0: Yeah. So we first learn about that with the pirates who are branded when they claim the pirate ship, Radican finds their emails and their communications to each other and she discovers that a lot of the pirates, they knew that their mission to to take over the fleet or attack the fleet was hopeless, but they still did it anyway because of their branded. And the branding is like when you when I read that, it's just like horrifying that these these folks are branded by this corporation. And then I think some of the pirates they end up committing suicide, like they have suicide pills or something, and that was part of the agreement too, to like yeah, leave no so. trace or something.
1: And there's also yeah, I, often talk of like if you know this indentured corporate man or woman doesn't meet their profitability goals, then they get months added to their sentence. Essentially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That also horrifying.
0: Yeah, like that seems like a clear injustice, and maybe that's what Pari created the fleet to to provide an alternative to. Throughout the book, we get these little interludes that are kind of like memos, or they're sort of outside of what Ratican is doing um, and what outside of the fleet. And one of them is this note from the, the HR department, which I'm assuming is the East Santos HR. And it says, the smooth running of an enterprise of any great complexity requires either self-managed subordinates or ones who have been managed into a sublimation of self. Both have their strengths and their weaknesses, and neither exists in a vacuum. Beware the obedient employee who hands their will over to the care of an authority outside the enterprise. Beware the self-managed employee who discovers their true place in the hierarchy. Both cause disruption. So it's like there's a real awareness of what happens to a person's psyche when they are so enmeshed with their employer. (laughs) Like,
1: right this, so this phrase, beware the obedient employee who hands their will over to the care of an authority outside the enterprise. That was something that was true throughout this book with all characters. You were in an institution or an organization, and that was it. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I work for, I work this job for this corporation between my nine to five, and, you know, I am also a Quaker, and also on weekends, I tinker at the lab or something, right? Like there were not mixed identities like that you did one thing and that was partly i think from the legal setup you got your identity and your rights from which box you were in and so you weren't it's not really possible to split yourself between several boxes like you're a company man or a union man or a Quaker or a police officer or you know something like that but you are not an individual whose ident- identity spans multiple concepts Right.
0: You know, that really explains why Radican has so much. There's a lot about her, like guilt about leaving her, her professorship, like taking the sabbatical very spontaneously. And I didn't get that, but I think you just clarified that for me that like, yeah, she was a professor and she decided to leave and take a sabbatical (laughs) and like that. There was something shameful about that. It seemed, but that makes sense that like these folks have to
1: have this sort of loyalty. Yeah. They need to be yeah. in a box somewhere, right? You can't just be free floating. If you're doing that, you're probably like the grandmother and the grandchild who don't have anywhere to go. So they're begging, right? Right. Uh, you need right. to either be a professor who's working for university or, you know, join the harvesters union and be a member of the fleet or this or that, but certainly not nothing and certainly not any of them at the same time.
0: Right. This note too says the self managed employee who discovers their true place in the hierarchy is also disruptive. And I think that's supposed to be Winters, our villain. She was fully committed and she, you know, she was given the instruction to reclaim this profit for the company, and she did everything she could. But what what did that mean? It meant that the pirates lost and became a legal liability for East Santos and her life depended on this profit. <laughs> And so she yeah. she did everything she could, every heinous thing. I mean, kidnapping Charlie and stealing her ovary, like that is extremely heinous, but she was willing to do that because she had to do it for the corporation. And so it kind of, it takes away her moral sense of self, I would think. I, th- mm-hmm. is that, I think that's what we're supposed to interpret. Yeah, well,
1: and then at the end she discovers, oh, due to some loophole in her contract, the corporation isn't going to, support her or provide representation now that she's in legal trouble. They're just going to cut her loose and she's going to be in jail for the rest of her life. So she discovered her true place in that hierarchy at the very end.
0: Yeah, that seems to be a real warning sign of like, don't sublimate yourself to some other entity, which now that makes me think of Abraham and how he merged with person and how that ended up crippling them both.
1: Yeah, so... A little explanation about that. Abraham is the father of the sisters. He often would, you know, put his goggles on and go into the ether, like lots of people do. But one day he just didn't come out. And that was 18 months ago. And he's been essentially alive, but in a coma. His goggles are still on. He's lost in the ether. And at some point while he was lost, he found person. He and person became merged. And that was helpful for a person becoming more of a person. And then there's, you know, a plot element where they become separated and Abraham can go back to his body and person can go on as a independent individual.
0: I thought the merging with person was the reason why Abraham got lost.
1: Yes, I think so.
0: Okay, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Abraham wants to help person out of the goodness of his heart. Like he, he sees a creature that is similar to a child and he wants to help this child escape a place that is unpleasant for the child. So Abraham had something put in his brain to halt Parkinson's. And so he had some kind of computer chip or hardware in his brain. And that's what made him more physical in
1: the ether, essentially. Ah, that's right. That.
0: And that's why person noticed him is because he's like, Oh, you don't look like a ghost. Well, apparently, real people walking around in the ether, they appear as ghosts. It's interesting that like Abraham out of like, you know, a desire to help a creature ended up sublimating himself. And it, like it wasn't, I don't think that it was anything malicious on either side. It's just that person needed more computing power and mm-hmm. Abraham was sacrificed for that computing power. And so it wasn't until they could move person to a, a different
1: server that Abraham could be free. That is interesting. That is the one example of merged identities that we get in this book, as opposed to shift solidly from one identity to the next. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know entirely what to make of it. Uh, it all ends up good in the end, right? Abraham comes back. Person moves on to the server that they need. Well, and person is
0: absolutely essential to getting the data to prove that Toby has ninety-nine point what percent of human DNA, and so is a human. Right under the law. So right. that becomes essential to the story. Pari and Radikin were talking about this, about person essentially springing from their father's head, like Athena. And there was a lot of like, there's some discomfort around that of like, okay, is this her brother? <laughs> and then Radikin provides the, the pathway for person to leave Abraham and, and go into the server of the ship. Cause she's plugged into the server of the ship when she's in the ether. And she's becomes like the Midwife, or something like they're trying to apply these roles, metaphors that are uncomfortable. Do you want to talk about
1: utopia gets dull? Yeah, I, I just thought I would mention this because um, this has come up in a couple of the other stories, like uh, Song of the Wild Bill, um, maybe a couple others, where if you have utopia, you know, and all your economic and social and physical needs are met, there may still be something in people that could be dissatisfied, right? You might just want something more even apart from that. And so I feel like there's a little bit of an echo of that with Pari. You know, she's created this amazing community in the sky, but she's kind of eager to get back to inventing and creating back on land. So it just seemed like a little bit of that theme that we've come across before, which is that uh, (laughs) humans always need a little bit more. They just need a little more to find meaning, (laughs) sure
0: yeah well i think i mean she created a a community that doesn't need her right i, I mean it's they yeah. love her and they want her in a leadership position but they have set up governance uh structures that she she could step down like it's not reliant on any one person to be part yeah, of the community which is really and that's a difference between well maybe it's not it, it just seems different from the corporation and indentured employee relationship where the indentured employee absolutely needs the employer. Um, Like that's a, that's a whole different way of thinking about it. Like, no, we're creating a community where each person has contributes, but then also has this, uh, sorry. Has ownership. So yeah, I don't know what I'm getting at exactly that this, that the concept, I mean, the, the quote that we, that we read from the HR note about how to make sure to, to keep an eye on these employees and make sure that they're, they're, pegs in the correct shaped holes whereas Pari has created something where it's like people bring their own and radican explores the different ships and the different cultures on each of the ships like there's a quaker ship and there's uh toby is from the like there's a ninja um, ship, (laughs) the ninja ship (laughs) that and they can bring those strengths and differences there's a long process of decision making when they deal with the pirates you know but It's really interesting contrast of that. This is what Pari has created and wanted. I just like Pari a lot. I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean she's really cool.
0: (laughs) Um. So we talked about with the fifth sacred thing about ownership and how that society they talk about you can't own earth, air, fire, or water. And I think I mean there's a lot about ownership in this book too. The idea like. I mean, Charlie's story is is kind of horrifying um, that Mm -hmm. that she could be kidnapped and kept in a dog kennel, essentially, because she has some dog like qualities and then operated on without her consent and her ovary taken. And then I I thought that I don't know if it was necessary, but like at the end, the FBI agents are like, here's a cooler with some organs. They tell her they're her organs But they were lying to her and they find out pretty quickly that the FBI kept her own ovary safe, you know? And Charlie's like, what are you talking about safe? The safe place for my ovary is inside my body. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's a real disconnect there about even with a so-called good intention of the law enforcement trying to keep it safe, it's still disgusting and horrifying that anyone could say where this ovary belongs other than Charlie herself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think in the Fifth Sacred Thing book there was a very clear connection between if you think you can own the earth, the water, the sky, you know, all of that, then you can think you can own a person. And this book shows us all the ways that people can be owned or can justify ownership of a person and it doesn't necessarily make, you know, the connection back to why and where those beliefs come from, but it it certainly shows a lot of those different beliefs about owning a person or parts of a person. And it's horrifying.
0: You know, and we've talked a bit about the role of religion in these books and there doesn't, I mean, they're the Quakers, but we don't get into a lot of like how the Quakers faith. I mean, it's there, but it's not explicit shapes, how they they participate in society. But when personhood is so clearly defined in law and not by something above the law, like something metaphysical, like religion or faith, Mm -hmm. like I find I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in God, but I still find that very disturbing, this idea that a human-created bureaucracy has the authority to determine what a human
1: is. I'm not comfortable with that. Yes, that is the right phrasing. Like, I want a bigger description, something metaphysical, philosophical, religious, something that will trump a merely legal description. Something that I think is related to how we define person is immortality. So the blood cult leader, which yes, there were pirates and blood cults and genetic engineering and all sorts of things (laughs) in this book, but the blood cult leader is seeking immortality. And as we were doing the summary, it just struck me how often that is true of villains, that they are after immortality. And, you know, I feel like the books and movies and stuff rarely go into this, but I think we all know that someone who's seeking immortality is Doing something wrong. Like they're untrustworthy in a way, probably because they can't see the limits of their own personhood or the limits of their own desire for power.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially in the framing that we've been applying to these books of like, where do humans fit in nature? Are humans in nature or outside of nature? And I mean, that's very clear from our opening quote. Mm -hmm. Toby feels outside, feels inhuman because he was a construction, he was made in a lab. And he feels like that
1: makes him less than human. And in Song of the Wild Built, the robots chose to be mortal, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, was in that book an indication of them achieving personhood.
0: Yes. So humans have the capability of imagining immortality. But to be human, you have to accept mortality. Yes, I think that's true.
1: I think there's also a similar urge of domination to seeking immortality and also trying to own water and sun and other people, right? It is at least connected mm-hmm. in that way.
0: Yeah, I think we're already kind of going
1: into the genre theme, so let's, let's exactly. talk more about that. <laughs> uh, so, once again, with these books, we saw a little bit of what it would be like just on a daily basis to live a life that is uh, in this totally different society, you know, where it's a small collective community there are certainly trade-offs. There's lack of privacy. There's not enough water for everyone to take a lengthy shower, but the trade-offs are improvised dance parties and a real sense of warmth, a variety of characters who provide, you know, wisdom and humor and comfort all at different times. Yeah. And there was also
0: one point Radican is trying to find some privacy so she can go in the ether. And she keeps like running into people. And she's just Mm -hmm. like, she feels overwhelmed with having to connect with people. And I I think that's really fascinating that that's been so clear in all of our books that, (laughs) that there's, there's something about like having to be present with other people.
1: And sometimes that takes a toll, but yeah, that's one of the trade-offs. Yeah. Another one of the trade-offs that I've been thinking about is one of the early meetings or something when the community was being founded someone was complaining because they were having peanut butter in meals like three times a week and Pari was mad about it she was like look it's vegan it's healthy you know it's vegetarian it provides all these needs you know just get used to having peanut butter three times a week. And it, I, I don't know. It's just funny. Cause it's like, yeah, the trade-off would be something like that. Like in the food would be a little boring. Just, you'd be cooking for a whole bunch of people or whatever, but.
0: Well, you know. calorie dense too. Like you have to that pack dense. light
1: when you're floating in the air. Yeah. Yes. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Would you have peanut butter for multiple meals a week? If you got this incredible second family out of it, probably, probably worth it. Right. I mean, yes, there are a lot of things you can do with peanut butter. Uh, So some other themes, getting away from existing power structures here, as we discussed, it was a little more of an escape instead of a total burn it down to the ground and start over like we've seen other places. Uh, But, you know, it all goes to escaping the existing power structures, I think. A theme we already mentioned, which is that a perfect society can't necessarily provide an individual sense of meaning for everyone for all time. And so you would still have those struggles, even in the good society, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And then I think the big overall theme, our ideas of property and personhood are very much related to how the environment is treated.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about this a lot. The idea, like our attitudes towards owning the elements and what that means for how our society is structured. I, I mean, it's just, it's kind of a multifaceted approach. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to have a a more, uh, complex idea of like how to form the good society and looking at clues of ownership to, to help us decide how to, how to form a good society. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think so. All right. Do you have any final thoughts for us? Um, well,
0: I've enjoyed our conversation a lot. So I think there's definitely a lot of really cool ideas in this book. There was a, an interesting story. I mean, it's fast paced, um, enjoyable story
1: for the most part. (laughs) So there were a couple points that maybe could have used a different editor.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to see how this all comes together in our final episode when we talk about the genre of solar punk altogether. Cause I do think this is a very good um, addition to our, to our
1: conversation about solar punk overall. Yeah, I agree. Our conversation has made me realize it's a great example of a, corporatist society, you know, where people have to Mm -hmm. fit into one role, it's sort of like the, the medieval ages, right? You have your guild or your, you know, role that's provided by the local lord or the church or whatever, and that's it. That's who you are. And this was a really good description of that and the freedom that people try to find within that successfully in a lot of cases. So I enjoyed our conversation about this. There were some points it was a little bit of a slow read, but very creative, very fun to think about being you know, on a solar ship fleet up in the skies. Yeah, absolutely. Listeners, what did you think of Suncatcher? What do you think about Solar Punk? Let us know by recording a voice memo and emailing openingquestion at gmail.com. You can also comment on our substack at bookclubpod.substack.com. Our next book discussion will
0: be about The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin read with us. We'll release that episode next week and
1: you can get your copy by using the affiliate link in our show notes. The book club podcast is produced by me, Caroline Gorman and Carly Jackson. Music and audio editing by Alex Marcus. Thanks for listening.